Christina, are we ready? Yeah. Great. Fools rushing. It's the Limbaugh Podcast Show. With Brian Christine Clay, you know. And guests who drop on by. Oh. the Limbaugh, a podcast about the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the people who have received it, the people who should receive it, and maybe a couple who shouldn't. I'm Brian Tuft. I'm Christine Sear. And I'm Clay Russell, not screwing up the intro for once. Woohoo! I'm so proud of you. This is... Thank you so much. I'm, I'm here for compliments. Um, so off the top, um, I know um, I once famously said that I would never issue an apology on this podcast, but um, I actually am going to rescind that statement and I'm going to apologize. Um, for those of you who actually are subscribed to the podcast and may have received it as soon as it dropped, uh, there was a moment in the podcast where I recanted a story that occurred about 30 years ago and used some very outdated language that I would comfortably call a slur, uh, and it was just thoughtless and off the cuff. And um, I did have to do some research to see um, just how big of a fuck up I uh suffered and I, 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 it was a big one. Uh, so I want to sincerely apologize to anyone who may have come into that version of the podcast. Um, I will say, uh, it was not only a learning experience because of the white hot shame, but also because I actually did have to do the research to see what the terminology is. So, um, for those of you who have no idea what I'm referring to, I'm happy for you. Clay was able to get it out of the, uh, (laughs) existing, uh, audio file. But for those of you who subscribed and were like, you know, driving to work or out, uh, you know, like listening to the podcast and several of my friends have reached out to me unexpectedly and said that they, uh, listen, every time an episode drops, I sincerely apologize. Uh, guys, do you guys have anything you want to atone for? I'm sorry in advance because I just got a dog and I'll probably talk about her a lot. So let's just blanket apologize for that ahead of time. Welcome, Rose, to the podcast. Yes, Am I allowed sure. to say your, your dog's name's on the air? I don't respect her privacy at all. Yeah, it's fine. Okay. Good. No, Good. she's like a Hollywood starlet having a baby. She did it for the likes and the clicks. <laughs> um, so let's get into it. Um, this week, I kind of figured we'd go from most serious to least serious uh, in terms of what I wanted to get into. Um, over the last few weeks, uh, the situation with Russia and the Ukraine has really deteriorated mm-hmm. with uh, Joe Biden and our international allies having to kind of beef up security. Um, this is not a, um, you know, international diplomacy podcast. Um, but I was curious because last week when we talked about Moynihan, we did talk about bipartisanship and Republicans and Democrats working together and criticizing each other when appropriate. And I kind of wondered, is the situation with Russia a new Cold War between Democrats and Republicans? Because Trump loves Russia. Mm. Republicans love Trump. And if you have watched any footage on Fox News, it appears that Republicans, or at least Fox News Republicans, love Russia and think that this is all on the board. 
And I think that this is going to be another thing that causes a schism between the Republican Party and hardcore Trump supporters, because I do think that there is a fair amount of the Republican Party who is still very anti-Russia and very anti-authoritarianism. And so maybe this is going to be the thing that breaks Trump from the Republican Party. I cannot believe some of the audio clips that I've come across over the last few weeks on Twitter um, with the way that they're talking about the situation, especially since, I mean, I think we can all agree that there's like 86,000 people in three states that decide every election. And like, according to the polling that's coming out of those states, like most people are like, no, what's happening in Ukraine is terrible. And I just, to me, like, having grown up after the, or I mean, I was born before, but having come of age after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the USSR, like, it's always been a thing where, like, what are you, a communist? What are you, Russian? Are you a spy? Like, every episode of, you know, a 60s sitcom, I mean, the plot of the movie that may win Nicole Kidman her second Oscar is about the idea that she may be a communist and maybe <laughs> working with the Russians. Yes. And to me, the idea that like Trump is like, I think they're fine. This is great. Um, it's just very, very baffling to me. And to me, the idea that the Cold War could end up being like a culture war in, you know, the Rachel Maddow, Tucker Carlson uh, version of Madison Square Garden is going to be fascinating. But I guess we'll only have to wait and see. I mean, the thing that scares the shit out of me going into 2024 is that Trump identifies with authoritarian leaders Mm -hmm. and that you could have a very real election between whoever the Democrats nominate, most likely Biden and Donald Trump. And there will be people outwardly saying, I'm for authoritarianism and everything that it stands for. And that's, you know, that's dangerous territory right there. It was always under the surface during the first Trump presidency. I can't believe I'm saying that. But this could be a very real conversation here. Now, what would give you the idea that he's into authoritarianism? Is it the new report from the New York Times that says that he and the DOJ almost seize voting machines? Maybe. Uh, to me, that seems pretty casual. Yeah. Uh, casual authoritarianism. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Like, it's the authoritarianism that you do on Friday. Um, <laughs> but speaking of Donald Trump and his acolytes... Um, I really thought uh, after the Four Seasons landscaping and gardening press conference after the 2020 election that Rudy Giuliani had hit the, you know, the the the, the rock bottom. You know, he was essentially with um, Catherine, the senator's daughter from the Silence of the Lambs, in that little well with Precious. And then somehow Rudy Giuliani took one step back and fell into a sub-basement of shit. Uh, It was announced this week, according to three sources who were at the taping, that Rudy Giuliani was unmasked on Fox's hit reality TV show, The Masked Singer, which caused um, two judges, including Robin Thicke, to get up and leave their seats because they refused (laughs) to interact with Rudy Giuliani. Can you ever in your, with the exception of when Sarah Palin was on The Mess Singer, never forget, uh, that happened the day that Tom Hanks got coronavirus uh, on that day in history. Um, wow. Anyone who has like truly like post 9-11 Rudy, untouchable uh, times at that point, man of the year. And now America's Robin Thicke won't talk to you on, on The Mask Singer. And he, Giuliani, could have retired after his second term and had bridges and parks named after him if he just shut the fuck up 
and just supported retirement associations and things like that. But no, instead... Relevant to last week's discussion, look at um, Javits and Moynihan. You know, these guys just like quietly went off into the sunset and now they're, you know, two major New York City landmarks are named after them. Mm-hmm. Well, now that we've taken a little detour into reality TV, I think we should uh, prestige it up a little bit. Um, the 94th Annual Academy Awards are set to be presented on Sunday, March 27th. This will be the last episode we record before nominations are announced on February 8th. Oh, I figured I would give everybody an opportunity to kind of push who they are most hoping will show up on nomination morning. Um, Christine, I know you were very into the Disney Plus streaming exclusive Encanto. I was was curious if you had any thoughts about Disney's plan to not submit We Don't Talk About Bruno for Best Original Song nomination and thus going with a kind of like inspirational romantic song. I've not seen the film, so I'm not familiar with the music. And I know you are. It is the third testament of the Bible in your home. But um, <clears throat> yeah, it's okay. So we don't talk about Bruno is like the hit song from the movie, but it's not like the core of the movie. Um in terms of the narrative and in terms of like, I think it's a feat of music writing in terms of like, Every because the whole thing was it's it comes pretty early in the movie, and they have to introduce this large family and they all have different powers and like your start like we don't talk about Bruno is when the like the layers are starting to get peeled off they're like oh perfect magical family you know and you're like oh there's some stuff going on here and the different characters who all have different sounds you know are all kind of giving their perspective of Bruno and it ends with like a classic sort of musical and which I know Lin-Manuel Miranda is fond of like I don't know in the biz we call it the all skate it's like you know everybody starts singing their part over each other and it's just like slightly cacophonous but it's perfect like it's a really good piece of music but it's not the heart of the movie the way um Dos Orguitas is and the other thing is as a movie that's like um, you know, they chose Columbia as the setting and they don't name the like time period. It looks to be like roughly mid 20th century. Um, and everybody who does, a, even though they're not seen and Disney doesn't have a great record of like casting, um, you know, like when you do a animated movie about a African lion and you have Jonathan Taylor Thomas do the voice, like. You know, they don't have the best track record with this stuff, but they actually, you know, cast a lot of, um, I guess, various Latino, Latina, Hispanic uh, voice actors. And the the man who sings Dos Orguitas, in addition to being extremely handsome, his name is Sebastian Yatra, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong. Um, He's actually Colombian. And the entire song is not only in Spanish, but um, Lin-Manuel wrote it in Spanish as opposed to writing it in English and then translating it into Spanish. And so I think it's sort of like as a celebration of of the movie and everything that the movie accomplished, I actually think I think they made the right move. It's, it's more of a prestige song, uh, whereas We Don't Talk About Bruno is more of the like obvious bop. So you also have, like, Billie Eilish, Jay-Z, Beyonce, all in pursuit of this one trophy. 
Um, although I think that Bond song was a snooze. I think it came mm-hmm. out two years ago. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not rooting for Billy. I like Billy. It's not a good song. Um, but uh, with Tick Tick Boom and In the Heights and the fact that he gave us Hamilton on Broadway on Disney Plus over the pandemic, <gasps> do you really like? Do you think Lynn has it in the bag? He's going to egot this year. I think he's going to egot at the tender age of what is he? Forty five. I don't want to talk about it. I know. <laughs> we don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about how old Lin-Manuel Miranda is to be that <laughs> and successful. And how much he's accomplished. <laughs> uh, Clay, what about you? Who are you uh, rooting for? I, uh, as a science fiction nerd, am really hoping that Dune gets some technical categories. Mm. I don't think it should be win Best Picture. I don't think there are any performances that warrant an actor nomination. But I... Uh, it doesn't happen often. Just I remember watching Dune with you guys in Forest Hills, and there were a couple of scenes where I said, I've never seen that before on film. Yeah. They I, they better crush some of them. And the costuming, mm-hmm. I hope th- I think they at least get a nomination for, um, for costume design because that stuff mm-hmm. was... I mean, they managed to make it look like weirdly familiar because Dune was such a seminal science fiction work that a lot of later sci-fi is inspired by, or at least like, you know, but it still felt new. Like I wasn't like, Oh, this is star Wars. Even though when you watch it, you're like, cause I've never read the book. Shame on me. Um, but you know, it, it was an inspiration for star Wars. And so, um, I agree. I think as like, and especially seeing it on the big screen, which I know not everyone did. Um, cause not everyone wanted to take their life in their hands and go see it in the theater, but we did. Um, and it, yeah, it was incredible. And you actually, how many times did you see it in the theater, Clay? Three times. Yes. <clears throat> Three I times, say, no regrets. I don't agree with you because I do think Rebecca Ferguson is doing a lot in that movie and she's not she getting is. enough credit. Um, the, uh, Directors Guild, Producers Guild, and some other guild, uh, just recently put out their nominations for, um, their respective guilds. And in them, the director's race only featured three people in, across all three guilds. And that is Jane Campion, uh, Villeneuve for Dune, and, um, I'm blanking on the third, which is horrible. Um, Kenneth Branagh for Belfast. Mm. Um, and I have to say after this kind of strong surge and the idea that like Hollywood is back and we're in the movies, baby. Um, what would you think if Villeneuve pulls off this win for Dune for best director? I don't think he will, but I think it no, I don't. I don't think he's deserved of best director yet. Yeah, I'm all in on Gene Gamby and winning, but I, I like. I will say when I saw that pop up, I was like, "That's interesting." I really thought Steven Spielberg was going to be the one who is present everywhere, whether or not he wins, just because he put out this movie, he'd worked so hard on it. You know, I feel almost feel like it not doing well at the box office has radicalized people into being like, "It's the best." Um, my, I, I do think it deserves. Uh, Many uh, again, technical categories. The sound is unreal. I think it deserves a nomination in costumes, at least. I think that that movie is a uh, one of those films that is a success on all levels, but your lead actor, and uh, obviously, you're not going to win anything if you have a flaw that huge. 
I think it was the trailer. I don't remember which trailer it was where, like, Maria sees him across the room and it, like, cuts to him. And I'm just like, him? <laughs> I know it's, like, there were problems with his um, personal life, alleged personal life. and It's also just not a good performance. But, like, yeah, he's, like, Both on not... camera and off camera, exactly. it doesn't work. It wasn't worth the trouble. <laughs> To cast a problematic person like him if he wasn't going to, like, light up the screen, which he very much, like, literally, I only saw that, and I'm a musical theater nerd, and I was like, I can't, this is obviously not going to work for me. I knew that that film was in trouble in the box office when Christine reached out and wanted to hang out. I think it was the second weekend in January, and uh, I said, great, Uh, and I looked to find a place that was playing West Side Story because I thought that she should see it despite its flaws and not a single theater in New York City is playing it. And that's, yeah, (laughs) that's bad. Um, My personal Oscar horse that I'm backing, um, I would love to see Jessica Chastain, who I feel like has had like an 11th hour Somehow the Jeremy Strong essay has come back to help her. And I feel like she's phenomenal in Eyes of Tammy Faye. Yes. I'd love to see her go for nomination number three. But my number one horse in the race is Kirsten Dunst. Um, You love Kirsten Dunst. I, like, realized over the course of the last couple of years um, that between Interview with a Vampire... Jumanji, Little Women, and Bring It On. Like, she was, like, the first person that I realized was, like, a movie star as, like, somebody who was, you know, six or seven when uh, her version of Little Women came out. Um, I Personally, I think she should already have three Oscar nominations for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Marie Antoinette, and um, controversially... Interview, or not so controversially, Interview with a Vampire. I think the idea that she didn't get it is shocking. I recently rewatched Interview with a Vampire. Brian, is that one of the hottest gay movies of all time? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's it's the second gayest Tom Cruise movie after the scene where they play volleyball in Top Gun. <laughs> uh, but I know that as of right now, um, it looks like West Side Story is going to clean up in that category. Um But I think that if anyone has a narrative where it's like, she's a child star who's made good, she's a movie star, she's done franchises, she's done art house films, I am hoping that um, Kirsten is going to pull it off and go all the way. Uh, She is who I'm rooting for. Did you mention Melancholia? Because her performance in that Mm. was insane. Yeah. It's such a good performance, but I vividly remember like the news breaking the day of the press conference that I believe she was at Con, And... um, uh, like Lars? I wish I had Lars Van Trier had yeah. like denounced the Holocaust, Our which thing, you know, yeah. Will Beagleberg can tell you don't do that. <laughs> um, and I remember watching her face during that conference, and she's like, it's "This the- is not a, this is not a visual medium. I was going to recreate it, um, but <laughs> I just I knew like at that point I was like, it's over. Like she that was the face she was making was like, this is it. Like no one's going to talk that- about anything but this." I think what he said was disgusting, but I think as the controversy has kind of died away, we now look back at that performance and we're like, wow, she was so amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm, she's in the power of the dog and I'm in the power of Kiki D. Like, let's go. Um, when we get back, it is Clay's turn to 
profile somebody this week. Uh, we're very excited about it. He was playing us some videos. We were talking about some biopic casting. And then we'll get into our medals of the week. Moscow, 1958. The Soviet Union is on top of the world. People are thinking it may be the world's top superpower. Six months earlier, Sputnik launched into space, showing up the Americans. Uh, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev wanted to make a little victory lap, so uh, he uh, very publicly conquered science and showed that the Russians and the Soviet Union are more advanced than the Americans. And so he put together the uh, International Tchaikovsky Competition to show once and for all that Russians also are better than Americans in the arts. Fifty pianists were invited to Moscow to compete in the competition, but all eyes were on who America would send. America was freaking out about being behind in the space race, and they knew that that the Russians were about ready to launch a man into space. And so they wanted to sweep it under the rug, and as opposed to sending a world-famous musician, they instead wanted to send someone obscure. And so if they did lose, they could just kind of throw this person under the rug and say, hey, it was expected. That's the America I love. Yes. (laughs) Never happened, guys. So who they sent was a 23-year-old, 6'4 Texan who went to school. That's right. (laughs) Went to school at Juilliard, tried to have a career, and flamed out. He was $7,000 in debt, which in today's money is $65,000 in debt. And he'd moved back in with his parents in Lockhart, Texas. I looked it up. The uh, population of Lockhart, Texas in 1958 was 10,000 people. He was closeted. He had no musical connections. And all that he did was stay at home and furiously practice the piano. They invited him to this competition just so they could say, well, it was expected. He's a burnout moving on. And so... 23-year-old Van Clyburn showed up to the International Tchaikovsky Competition. This was a nationally broadcast competition to show once and for all that Moscow was a stronger power. Van Clyburn showed up, sat at the piano, and proceeded to beat the shit out of every single person there. Yes. (laughs) And overnight, Van Clyburn became an overnight success. Once his performance finished... He received an eight-minute standing ovation, and the uh, organizers completely freaked out because it was obvious for everyone that the American was better than everyone else. They actually went all the way to the Soviet premier, Nikita Khrushchev, and asked him what to do. And in a scene that is purely from a 1980s action movie with Russians being the villains, Mm. this was the exchange Premier, what are we going to do? Everyone knows that that Van Clyburn is the winner. And Nikita Khrushchev looked at them and said, is he the best? And they said, yes. And he said, well, 
give him the medal. And so it was a huge deal that they awarded the prize to Van Cliburn. He came back. He was the first classical musician to ever receive a ticker tape parade in New York. And he pretty ah. much lived out his life with that story. Van Cliburn, his real name is Harvey LaVon Cliburn, was born July 12th, 1934, to a oil worker and his mother who studied under a, a disciple of Franz Liszt. So it goes back that far. Uh, in his teachings, they made sure to specialize that Van Cliburn really emphasized melody. And so before he would play the piano, they asked him to sing the part. And so his piano playing mimicked uh, someone singing. And that's how he was able to create his style that he had. Uh, at the age of 20, he moved to New York. As I mentioned, he enrolled in Juilliard. Uh, then tried to start his career and just didn't get anywhere. People weren't into him. Uh, you, he you know, ran up a bit of a debt living in the city, but definitely enjoyed himself and then moved home. Uh, and skipping forward to what I just described, he's in Moscow. Uh, Khrushchev goes up to him and through an interpreter says, American, why are you so tall? And he shoots back because I am Texan. So I know that this is an audio medium, but I wanted to play something for Christine and Brian. So uh, just to picture uh, what you're about ready to see here is uh, that he just finished the performance. And at the time, you know, if you clapped for an American, you were either thrown in jail or worse in the Soviet Union. So he finishes a performance. The crowd's going crazy. Uh, the... Uh, Musicians don't know what to do. So what you're about ready to see is that he finishes and he's supposed to go uh, backstage and they were going to discuss what to do because they were in shock. Are they going to award it to this guy or what? And so you're going to see the end of the ovation. He is supposed to go backstage. He sits down at the piano and out of the blue plays a song called Moscow Nights which is basically uh, uh, This Land is Your Land. If someone was to play This Land is Your Land, like a quintessential right. Russian folk song. And it's kind of a beautiful moment where uh, people think that this guy's defeated them and he sits down and, you know, even though that they don't speak his language and he can't speak theirs, he's basically communicating, hey, we're cool, you know? Mm -hmm. Please don't murder me. Exactly, yeah. But I would like you to keep your eyes, and we're going to post this clip uh, in the show notes, keep your eyes not on Van Cliburn, but the musicians behind him who look furious at first until they realize what song he's playing. And look at the smile on the oh violin player's face. I know. They're all like whispering to each other, too. Yeah. And so after this performance, someone wrote something very interesting, which was you weren't allowed to 
say that you liked America, but in expressing admiration for Van Cliburn, you were allowed to, in a way, say that you admired Americans, which is a pretty incredible thing. Yeah. Yeah. And remember great head of hair this guy has. Absolutely. I'm glad you said it because as I was watching it, I was like, it's just so striking how like, not only is he there, not only whooping their ass, not only is he making this gesture, but he's just so strikingly handsome. He looks so incredible. Like just so striking in his physical presence at the piano. Um, You almost feel bad for them. Yeah. (laughs) They didn't stand a chance. (laughs) And look at like, look at the, the crowd there too. That's standing room only right there. I was going to say, they look like they're standing up. Exactly, yeah. And remember that this is 1958. Television and broadcast is relatively new uh, in the world. Most of these people had never seen an American before. If you think about it, they have no idea what they look like. And this guy shows up. (laughs) And they're like, hey, hey. Yeah, like think of Oh my God, someone hand some flowers? Yeah. No, it was an international sensation. Wow. And so, yeah, it's just an absolutely incredible story. Uh, it is. And uh, so after all of that, he lived in New York for a bit. He uh, definitely enjoyed uh, the life of New York, especially, again, you know, if you're a, a closeted gay man, that's that's the spot to be in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, after that, he settled down in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, where he would occasionally play tours and things like that and supported the arts. Uh, he would, you know, occasionally go to plays and things like that. And uh, once met a young child actor named Clay Russell, and I shook <gasps> his hand. Wow. Okay. okay. Way I've... to bury the lead on this one, Clay. No, yeah. my, when you were done talking, I was going to be like, okay, as someone from Fort Worth, Texas, like, you know, was he sort of like a local hero? And there you go. So my parents said that when he shook my hand, that my entire like forearm disappeared because his hands were so huge. And you were uh, not yet also monstrously tall. Exactly. Yeah. And so just to kind of give a, an idea to Wait, get a little a nerdy. Wait, do you have a picture of this moment? I don't know. I wish that there was. Yeah. Damn it. Okay. So uh, if you think about if are there are any piano players out there uh, that usually to hit an octave, which is basically hitting a C and then hitting the next C up or down, you kind of have to stretch your hand, right? Uh, so what he was able to do because his hands were so huge is he was able to hit uh, the C and then go the C after and go all the way up to the A note, which is physically impossible. <laughs> but he was able to do it, and that's how he was able to play so strikingly and with such power because he was able to hit these incredible chords. But the thing is, imagine being able to use hands that size so <laughs> elegantly because <laughs> grow up, Christine, Jesus. Like, it's like trying to, like, at that size, my first image was the Incredible Hulk playing the piano. And, like, he wouldn't do a good job. Like, his hands are too big. Right. And yeah. the idea that, like, this man had essentially, like, these dinner plate-sized hands where he was able to, like, reach from one side of the piano to the other in a single jump is very, like, it's... It's not just that he physically was able to do it, but it was the idea that he had the control to do it. And it didn't sound like essentially, you know, a cat walking across a piano. 
Absolutely, yeah. So after he returned to the United States, he actually went on tour with the conductor from the Soviet Union of that orchestra, and they did a little goodwill, uh, goodwill and peace tour around the world. Uh, and one of the recordings at Carnegie Hall was released on record, and it became the first classical album to sell more than a million copies. Yeah, I just think it's an absolutely incredible story uh, of uh, someone who wasn't necessarily a statesman, wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. a great uh, debater or politician, and almost unknowingly was thrust into this unwinnable situation with an American enemy and through his art and his specialty managed to bring these two worlds together, which is kind of a beautiful thing to think about, uh, this, this person who was almost an accidental statesman in a way. There's something about the arts that's um, of various types that's able to transcend a lot of other boundaries, um, mm-hmm. like political or cultural or whatever. And, and as much as I'm like, wow, this is such an unlikely story, I'm almost like, what else besides art could have could have bridged that gap, especially at that time? And with two cultures that did not speak each other's language. Just to, to watch that clip again, there is no way that an American get that type of reaction from the Soviet Union in the depths of the Cold War without something that they could both connect to. And they both connected through that song, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I have to say, I did not know literally any of this. Like this was all mm-hmm. brand new information. I can't believe this amazing handsome man was like hiding in the history books and I didn't even know about it. He was obviously there at the exact right moment, but also maybe at the exact wrong moment because directly after this is Elvis Presley and the birth of rock and roll where no longer uh, classical and uh, I guess traditional type of music was the focus of youth culture. So he only was a couple of years younger than the – or a couple of years older than the Beatles. Like they're that same generation. But yeah. It's such an interesting story. So, yeah, he uh, he uh, basically lived the rest of his life. Any time that there was a big Russian conference, they would invite Van Cliburn because he was kind of that common person to bring them together. He played for every single president from Eisenhower up until Obama. Which oh, my is, God. Yeah. Wait, he got so out this- just in time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. What? And Wait, uh, this is a Clinton... Uh, no, this, no is, uh, this is George W. Bush. Uh, the reason why is because both of them were from Texas. So that's why he uh, he was sure. given the, the medal. Yeah. So cool. I know Christine said she was unfamiliar with him, but um, off mic I told my co-host that I was familiar because last June I did a um, research rundown on everybody who is a member of the LGBT plus community who's received the medal. And he was one of the names I didn't recognize where I was like, who is this? And that brings me to my main question, which is, did George W. Bush know he was gay or did he get surprised (laughs) on medal day when he brought like a partner? Great question. You know, that generation, just both uh, establishment and uh, that community just didn't talk about it, really. Laura, who's that man with the, with, with Van Cliburn? <laughs> with Van Cliburn? Is that his brother? I think that that's his partner. He's a lawyer. 
And he plays the piano? Amazing. <laughs> Here, George, put on this poncho. It'll keep you occupied for a few minutes. Michelle, do you have a piece of candy for Georgie? <laughs> wow. Um, excellent, excellent pick, Clay. And um, I do like that you were able to somehow shoehorn yourself into that it. Was, this was <laughs> top to bottom an excellent run because there was this twist at the end. It Thank had you. everything. Thank also, you. I've known like podcaster Clay. I've known stand-up comedian Clay. What I would not give to know child actor Clay. Oh my god! I'm getting like <laughs> baby Clay, Anna Kendrick in camp like uh, vibes. Like you giving food <laughs> poisoning to be the lead yes. in Guys and Dolls. <laughs> That's adorable. <laughs> so uh, I have a controversial pick for who this person would be today. Okay. I think that it would have to be someone who was thrust into a cultural moment, uh, wasn't necessarily an activist, was just kind of there and almost stumbled into the conversation. Uh I think that it would have to be fellow Medal of Freedom winner, Ellen. Whoa. That was not... I have a completely different angle that I was doing for my pick, but wow. we I mean, we're not like Ellen fans on the show. Yeah, yeah. her public <laughs> view has radically changed, but she was just a comedian kind of doing her thing on uh, on a popular show back in the 90s and was thrust into this conversation and, and you know, became this this figurehead very uh, reluctantly in a way right i'm not going to comment on ellen but what i will say is i will go the similar route and i would pick what i think is future medal recipient colin kaepernick Ah. well uh, i don't know though like he uh, he very justly uh, was was outspoken and and stood up to the moment but you're right, though. Like, he would have never guessed that he would have become this this public figure in this discussion, and especially with with uh, post-Trump America. Uh, yeah, you might be right. So, okay, I went in a completely different direction. Well, yeah. <laughs> you were like, I picked Elton John because he plays the piano. <laughs> <laughs> no, but... It's Billy Joel. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's not someone that I've seen at Madison Square Garden. How's that? <laughs> they uh, also went on a little tour together, like uh, Ben Clyburn and the orchestra guy from Russia, which was, you know, <laughs> two opposing forces coming together okay, for well, one night only. Them. <laughs> it's Queen, the performance at Live Aid 1985. And the reason that I picked that was more just like this, like, electric musical moment. Um, I mean, I guess there is also... Um, you know, Freddie Mercury, you know, as a, also, I guess, kind of reluctant, reluctantly having his personal life, um, politicized and, um, kind of, uh, Clay, hear me out or back me up here. Wasn't like, wasn't Queen kind of fading a little bit at the time? Like they had kind of passed their prime and this moment was like this triumphant, like, holy shit, like, he just came and ate up the entire stage for 20 minutes. And everyone kind of yeah. counted them out. So, that But was not as bad as Bohemian Rhapsody makes it seem. 
Mm-hmm. Like if you've seen the biopic, the biopic makes it seem like they're long in the tooth, they're out, they're in their flop era, as the children would say. <laughs> they actually wore like they the the greatest hits that they had at that period of Live Aid. Just none of those songs uh, necessarily were were in that era. Uh, they definitely had a bit of a downturn uh, toward the the end of the years. That doesn't take away from the incredible music that they made. In 1985, they didn't realize they were just like seven years away from um, Wayne's World, bringing them right back into the... Because I'll be honest with you guys, that's the first time I ever heard Queen was the movie Wayne's I think World, a lot of people, was, yeah. What, 1992-ish? Sounds about right, yeah. And I heard that Mike Myers had to fight the studio to use that song because they were like, why are you using these has-beens? so random. Right. Like, these guys would probably listen to, like, metal or, you know, like mm-hmm. a hair band. And it was like, no, they're, like, geeking out in the car. It's, like, one of the iconic – I mean, that whole movie was foundational for my personality and sense of humor. But um, the uh, the scene singing Bohemian Rhapsody is, like I, – like, I couldn't believe that was a song. And we didn't have the mm-hmm. internet back then, kids. So I just like had to ask my parents, I guess, and they were like, "Oh yeah, that was like a huge song in the late seventies. I don't know. Whatever you think about the film Bohemian Rhapsody, the way that they portrayed him writing that, I thought was incredibly done. Mm. Yeah, but the problem is then they do the one where they're doing what well, we will rock you, and they make it seem like it's just yeah. his genius. And I'm like, honey, yeah. no, this is two pieces. This right. is this is giving Gwen Stefani writing Holla Back Girl. Like, mm. I'm not into it. <laughs> <laughs> Clay, I learned so much today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that I had a chance to do it. He, uh, I guess, would be the only Medal of Freedom recipient that I've shaken the hand of. Although we have seen Billie Jean King before. That was pretty cool. We have. Well, I'm shaking her hand. Ooh. (laughs) It's very soft. It's soft. So, yeah, 2003, Medal of Freedom recipient. His nickname after the performance was the American Sputnik, which I thought was a pretty badass nickname. That's pretty cute, yeah. Van Clyburn. When we come back, our Medals of the Week. Okay, last but not least, we're going to do our Medals of the Week. This is person, sometimes an animal, sometimes like a, a concept or an institution. Just like whom or what do we think uh, was deserving of a medal this week? So who wants to go first, Brian? Uh, yeah, I will go first. Uh, my medal of the week goes to uh, somebody who in October was a complete unknown and is now responsible for more Twitter activity than probably anyone else on Twitter since Donald Trump got kicked off. And that is Josh Wardle, uh, the gentleman who created Wordle. Yes. Um, started it in mid-October for his partner, who mysteriously nothing is known about other than she is a woman. Um, he had about 90 users on November 1st. And this week, after watching millions of people play daily, the New York Times came a call in and they bought the invention from him for about low seven figures um couple mil and during his yeah i mean you know just just enough uh to get by a small loan um, 
<laughs> but um, during his negotiations with the New York Times, he fought to make it that uh, it does not become one of the games that's behind their payroll, um, like Spelling Bee and the actual paywall. famous New York Times crossword puzzle, um, and is now working with the New York Times to ensure that everybody who has been playing long term gets to keep their streaks and gets to keep all of their stats from the original game. And I will say, um, I am very familiar with the game show network show Lingo, which is essentially the same show or the same idea as this game. But I don't know, like maybe it's the pandemic. Maybe it's just the idea of like looking for, uh, you know, like a, a moment of monoculture. But I excitedly, if I'm awake after midnight, will be like, should I play it now? Should I play it in the afternoon? When should I do it? Like the idea that you only get one a day, like it's like an antipsychotic. Like it's just, I look forward to it all day. Aw, yeah. And I think there are so many things that we can like binge nowadays. Like the restraint of being like, no, you get one Wordle a day and everyone gets mm-hmm. the same Wordle and you're just going to have to figure it out. And like there's, I, I played it a You few- value it more. And it also, like, doesn't baby you. Like, it's a deceptively simple game. But I remember the first time I played it, I, like, tanked because I didn't understand what was going on. Because <laughs> you're like, no, 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 I need, like, a baby bird. Yeah, like, you have to tell me how this works. And it was like, you're just going to have to power through. Mm-hmm. And I respect and, that. And, you know, I don't know much about Josh, but I will say that I do feel that it's important to celebrate the concept of Wordle and his efforts because it's brought together this little community and has made many people very, very happy. And I know that because there are so many people who are upset about Wordle and have hacked it and have posted spoilers and have contacted people to tell them what the word of the day is when they posted about it the day before. So I just feel that to counteract that, I'm going to celebrate Josh Wordle and his fun little game. And I, if you want to follow me at Brian is tough, you can see me, Uh, The other day, I got it in one go. It was, like, truly the biggest day of my life. Like, I came downstairs like it was my wedding. Like, I was like, there are so many people to thank. (laughs) A toast. (laughs) That's incredible. That's not even... I didn't know that that could happen. It's. Do you do the same starter word every time? No, but Mm. I like words that usually have H, R, A, and a second vowel. So I usually like circle through. And one day I just picked the right one and it had all of those in there. Wow. Move over, Bones Day, no Bones Day. This is how (laughs) we're measuring how our days are going to go. Sorry, I'm on a four-guest day. Mm. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, good for Josh Wardle for getting paid and, and looking out for the fans. We'd love to see it. Um, Clay, how about you? My medal of the week doesn't go to a person, but an entire continent of people. I'm giving it to the people of Australia. Australia, which I think is like your cool cousin who lives very far away and you'd like to get to know, but it's just the distance, so you wish them all the best. The way that the Australian Open happened with the Australian Tennis Federation trying their hardest to completely screw it up, and each time the public outcry uh, corrected it. Uh, Exhibit number one is the one that that most people were talking about, which is the Australian Federation, despite the government policy of uh, inviting vaccinated visitors, let Novak Djokovic fly to the border 
saying that just because he was famous and the number one tennis player in the world, he is able to skip out on the vaccine mandate because he gave a half-assed excuse that he tested positive for COVID, so he should be allowed in. The public and the people of Australia completely had an outcry over it, especially after going through all the the lockdowns to make sure that everyone stayed safe. Uh, This, in turn, pressured the Australian government to basically detain Djokovic and investigate it further, and upon hearing the case, deported him. Uh, As a result from this, we got to see something historic happen last week, which is Rafa Nadal won his 21st major which is incredible. Say what you will about Nadal. He uh, clearly has some OCD tendencies, if you've ever seen him play, but he's never been a jerk. So you get that. And the bigger story was that the first Australian champion was crowned since, I believe, 1978 in Ashley Barty, Uh, doubly important because she is of Aboriginal heritage as well. So uh, the uh, tennis fans were able to see one of their own, be able to lift the trophy, and you were able to kind of block out all the crap that the uh, tournament organizers invented uh, and brought upon themselves. Uh, And then lastly, in terms of uh, an outcry, is that the uh, Australian Tennis Association actually threw out a couple of fans because they uh, wore T-shirts that said, where is Peng Shui? If you don't know the story, she is the Chinese tennis player who uh, publicly accused a uh, China government official of sexual assault and basically has disappeared. And uh, they want to try to create a protest and pressure onto China uh, to make sure that that this this tennis player is looked after and is safe. Uh, after the Australian Tennis Association threw out the fans, again, the people of Australia had a gigantic outcry, and those people were let back into the tournament. So uh, the uh, federation that runs the tournament was just only caring about the bottom line. I uh, think that they deserve the Limbaugh, but I think that the <laughs> people of Australia yeah. have always been pretty cool deserve the prize yeah they really didn't mess around i i think the um the newest thor movie uh which is gonna have natalie portman in it was all filmed in australia because it like last fall maybe last summer last fall because australia was mm-hmm. like doing really well with covid because they were so strict about it like uh, people arguably more famous than him we're like going stir crazy in hotel rooms for two weeks because like that was the rule. If you know, that was the only way you could get in and how many people have like done, you know, followed the rules, done what they were supposed to do because not just because they're the rules, but cause that's what's best for, you know, this country that actually tried mm-hmm. uh, against COVID. So yeah, hats off to our Australian brethren. To echo both of your sentiments, like shout out to the people of Australia because they gave us Taika Waititi and Rita Ora because when they all had to be in lockdown and then they all like were out able to socialize, they met and fell in love and I think are going to get married. And for those of you who had listened to the podcast Who Weekly, Rita Ora is our first lady. Like the idea that she could become first lady of Australia, like, oh, I love that for her. <laughs> She's definitely... Isn't he from New Zealand though? 
Brian. I just, I feel like when, oh, I didn't think because she married him. I just, I feel like she's on Mass Singer. She's on The Voice. She's on like all of their shows. She's doing everything mm-hmm. in Australia. If you listen to Who Weekly, you'd understand. Long time, long time. Crunch, crunch. <laughs> Christine? Yeah, so mine's just like silly and fun. So um, collective award to the people of Minnesota. Because the Minnesota Department of Transportation has an annual Name the Snowplows contest, and they just announced the winners. So by far, the runaway winner is Betty Whiteout, in honor of the late, great Betty White. (laughs) Coming in second was Control-Salt-Delete, followed by the Big Laplowski, Plowosaurus Rex, and Scoop Dog. Um, and then there were a couple more also rands, Blizzard of Oz, No More Mr. Ice Guy, and Edward Blizzard Hands. And I just, you know Minnesota, they've they've got some uh, ah, they've got some creativity over there. Listen to me, I love puns. I know some people think puns are like one of the lowest forms of humor, but like I love them. I love the spirit of this whole exercise. They're gonna have an annual name the snowplow contests. I love that Betty Whiteout is the winner. It was just it put a smile on my face. So Minnesotans, you get my medal of the week. That makes me really happy because Betty White's most iconic character for a large majority of the population is as Rose Nyland on The Golden Girls, and she always talks about being from St. Olaf, Minnesota. And to me, the idea that they are honoring her with this is just, that's really lovely. It is, yeah. It's not as good as when gay people uh, fixed the vote and <laughs> named the Megabus Megabussy <laughs> that runs from <laughs> New York to Boston. But it's it's almost no, there so in terms the of how much I love it. Is that like these public <laughs> naming contests can sometimes get re- go really sideways. And this is one that just seems to have like a delightful spirit to it. So, yeah. Good job, Minnesota. Keeping it clean. Keeping it classy. And um, I'm sure I'm sure Betty Whiteout is going to do a great job for you this winter. Well, you know, back in St. Olaf, there was the the Herring Circus <laughs> or whatever. Anyway, we still love maybe Betty White's like the Taylor Swift of this era of the podcast. And we'll talk about her every week in some way. I hope so. I did do a very deep Google search on Van Cliburn and Taylor Swift, and I'm Sorry to say that there's nothing there. I mean, she's still a young woman. Yeah. She could shock us and, and improve relations with any number of countries before mm-hmm. before her time's up. So I can't wait until she he's going to play piano on Enchanted, Taylor's version, when she drops the new version of Speak Now. <laughs> I'm calling it. That's my called shot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, I, we already know Clay's going to apologize for something next week, but you'll just have to wait and find out what it is. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, we'll see you next time. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Lim- Limbaugh Podcast. You did it. I did it. You did it, Christine. <laughs> okay. All right, guys. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. No <laughs> mistakes at all. We're perfect. <laughs>